Good morning, and I feel welcome. I'm just kidding. You haven't done anything yet. Um, guys, uh, yeah, we're from Chilliwack, so making the drive out here was pretty epic and awesome. Um, I made a comment earlier that's just stuck with me and made me smile. I said, somebody was doing a sound check, and they're like, well, tell us a little bit about your drive. And I was like, well, I kind of miss Chilliwack, like a little bit more ocean there, a little more trees, mountains are a little more epic. No, it's awesome here. Guys, it's awesome here. I'm going to do something weird. I'm going to steal this for two reasons. Number one, I'm going to feel more comfortable sitting down. Um, my wife told me, you better not wear jeans today. And I was like, why not? This is Squamish. And she's like, bad, ah, always over-prepare. And I was like, okay, I'll wear my cords that go when I walk. And then I see these, these people up on stage, and they're all wearing sandals and shorts. And I just looked at her, and I'm like, can't wear jeans, hey? Anyways, so I'm just going to relax, because I think... I think God's laid something pretty awesome on my heart and on my head today, and it's not anything that probably, like, probably all of you have heard this before. Um, I just want to talk about it a little bit, because I think there's some truths that, that we need to kind of reiterate, and we need to walk away with a little bit more of, of what our text is saying today. So um, we're in John chapter 13. John is the beloved apostle. He was Jesus' uh, uh, one of his twelve. And more importantly, he was one of the three of the inner circle. So it was James, his brother, and uh, Peter, the rock. And uh, they saw things. They experienced some events that no other disciples had the opportunity or the ability to. Um, So he's bringing us something here out of a a pure passionate relationship with Jesus. I mean, he saw a side of of our Lord that nobody else got to see, or very few got to see. Um, He rested on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper, um, he, he walked with him during his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, he saw Jairus' daughter raised from death to life. And so, um, after Jesus exhaled his last breath, John had the privilege of, of taking care of his mother. I mean, this is how close this guy was to Jesus. It is one of the most intimate earthly relationships that Jesus had. And so, John was privileged And I love John. I love him so much. Um, He gives us more of the New Testament than any other disciple. Did you know that? About 5%, actually. He wrote the gospel after his name. He wrote his three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he wrote the book of Revelation. And so, as we're reading through John, we get this tremendous sense that he's just this apostle of love. Because that's the major theme in all of his writings, is love. And John tells us in John 3.16, that epic passage, Jesus loved you guys so much that he died for you so that you could live, right? Gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, but would have eternal life. That's not what I'm talking about today, because everybody knows that one. And that one's been preached to death, to death, as awesome as it is. I want to talk about John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, which is actually a little sliver of a story out of the the last... Last Supper. Um, I think why this one's so important is because it's, it's actually a new command. So um, I think we need to perk up when we hear Jesus say something. Like when he reiterates stuff from the Old Testament, we need to listen. And when he lays down something new, we need to listen. And so that's what we're doing today. We're just listening. We're listening to what this, this beloved apostle has to say from his time with Jesus. What that looks like 
kind of for that first century Jewish audience, and then how that translates to us today, what it means for us. So with that, I'd like to read the scripture. A new command I give to you, he says. Love one another as I have loved you. You must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So to give you some context, John had just been anointed in Bethany. Jesus. John wasn't anointed at all. Jesus had just been anointed in Bethany. And he hops on a camel and he travels to Jerusalem. And that was making a statement. People are laying down coats and, and leaves. And, and then Jesus makes his way to this upper room with his disciples and he sits down with them. There were a lot of disciples, okay? There was 12, and then there was the greater 120. And then there was a whole bunch of more people who followed Jesus. But he sat down specifically with this 12. This is the last and most epic feast he would have with them. So he goes over some administrative stuff, and kind of right in between calling Judas out for being a liar and a backstabber and a thief, and and telling Peter that Peter was about to betray him. Right inside of that story, we find this passage of Scripture. So I think that that context needs to marinate with us as we listen to the rest of what John has to say to us today. Um, the passage is actually the turning point, the turning point in all of the Scriptures, I would argue. Jesus did some awesome stuff. But when he sits down with his apostles and he says, I'm giving you a new commandment. I think of it like um, maybe most of you remember. It's a wonderful, fantastic, classic film, uh, animated feature called Kung Fu Panda. Do you remember that one? Yeah. Do it again. That was great. So Poe is this panda. He's no idea who he is. He just kind of stumbles upon you know, this misshapen group of friends who are kung fu ninjas. And it's all he's wanted. He plays with their action figures. And, and then they welcome them into, into their fold. Not because they want to, but because some mistaken reason they think he's the, the kung fu master they've been waiting for. Um, so what happens is basically Tai Lung, after a 20-year stint in prison, he escapes he ravages the valley like he's doing everything he can to get back and to attack and to just get this dragon scroll so he can claim his rightful position as the, the, the dragon master. And, and he finds out that Poe already has the scroll. But Poe, like, we're seeing the scroll, all he saw was his reflection. He, he was expecting some magic or some spell or some thing to transform him into something that he wasn't necessarily confident that he was. But Tai Lung comes, and in this final epic scene of the movie, Tai Lung is like clawing over roofs, and he's doing everything he can to get to him. And, and, and Poe is just like, everything he's doing is just like rejecting and bouncing him off. And, and finally, Tai Lung just belly bounces up into the sky, and he crashes to the ground, and he climbs out of this pit, and he's like dazed and confused. He says, you can't beat me. Like, I'm the Kung Fu master. And Poe says... Actually, he says, you're just, you're just a big, fat panda. And Poe says, I'm not a big, fat panda. And, and, and you start to well up inside because that's what Poe's been struggling with the entire film, that he was just a big, dumb, fat panda. He says, I'm not a big, fat panda. I'm the big, fat panda. 
And that's it. Boop, whooshy finger hold, kapow, movie's over, and Poe saves the day. And then there's two more sequels to it. So it, it's a fantastic tale that illustrates the point. This isn't a turning point. This is the turning point in the entire scriptures. Jesus lays down a new command. So I think what we can't help but see is that Jesus' focus changes from before this point, from reaching out to the, the crowds and, and healing people and, and, and feeding them and stuff, to focusing intentionally on his disciples with, with the direct um, understanding of what he's about to encounter, the days, or sorry, the hours that were, that were about to happen upon him. Um, so I think supping together for them, um, it gave his disciples... Uh, although as confused and dazed as they may have been, um, a, a totally different understanding of Jesus' person and his purpose and his mission. I'm going to jump to the Old Testament here. Um, actually, I should tell you, my purpose is, is I want to lead you guys back to the origin of this command. I really think that this, this new commandment has its roots in the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament. And I think it culminates in the Gospels. And then I think the, the epic focus, the epicenter is here in John 13. So going back to the Ten Commandments, um, we know now, hindsight's twenty twenty, but we know that the giving of the Ten Commandments represented um, for the nation of Israel um, something revolutionary. So put yourself in their shoes. Up to this point, Israel had no idea who this God was that they were supposed to be serving, other than a pillar of cloud and fire and some water from a rock and maybe a bit of manna from heaven. But Moses coming down from from Mount Sinai some 3,500 years ago with two slabs of rock in his hand inscribed by the finger of God. It meant something tremendous for them. So they were polytheists before. They knew nothing about Yahweh. But when Moses came down and he showed them these Ten Commandments, to, to Israel, it was actually probably a tremendous relief for them because now they, they, they were gaining some understanding or a further understanding about who this God was that they were supposed to serve. And so it had just probably calmed their nerves to the nth degree. It gave them some structure. What it actually did was it laid a framework for them to worship God, to know him first, and then to worship him. Um, a framework, if you don't understand. It's a software term, amongst other things, but making it really simple. Um, it's a basic structure or skeleton that supports something. Think of it like... Uh, writing an English essay, you write an outline first because that gives you your introduction, your body, and your conclusion. And that basically dictates everything else you're going to write. Or think of it like building a house. So when you build a house, what's the first thing you do? You dig and pour the foundation, and then you frame it. You can't do anything else until you've put a roof on. You can't put windows in or doors or floor or paint or bring in appliances the house framework is that actual frame and, and, the, and the roof, and you can't build outside of that. I want to illustrate this point a little bit. So uh, with a best friend of mine, super close family friends of ours, uh, we loved them to death. Um, we decided, we're crazy, him and I, uh, we were going to build a house together. So we went and we found a piece of land in Vancouver. Actually, he did. And um, he called me, and we were having dinner, and he's like, we got to buy this right now. That was his personality. Everything was now. And I was like, okay, I trust you. So we bought this land, and it was expensive, and we tore the house down and built this house. And every decision along the way, I was the GC, self-appointed, not. He made me. 
Um, so every decision along the way was us bringing to, to this guy, my pal, um, okay, so here's what we, the sizes of the rooms, and here, here's the style of the house. And, and we would be like, yes, no, yes, no. Like, we would take all our cues from him. So him giving us direction every step along the way, on the day the roof trusses were supposed to be delivered, I'm not talking conceptual drawings or like looking on Pinterest for, for house plans. I'm talking, we had built the exterior of the house. It, it was done. Like it was basically, everything was framed. We were just dropping the roof trusses on. So they're being delivered, the trucks on route. And my pal, Paul, says, yeah, so I want to change the house from a West Coast modern, or sorry, from a craftsman, which we had decided on, to a West Coast modern. We're like, can't do that. It's built. The house is built. The trusses are designed. They're coming in an hour. No, we have to change it. This whole area just calls for a West Coast modern. Paul, that's what we told you in the first place. This was a West Coast modern kind of house. It was in North Vancouver. And so it was an epic battle. We're like, you can't change the framework. You can't. That's the framework. You can choose the appliances. You can choose the color of the walls. You can choose the type of the floor. But the house is done. It just isn't completed yet. But the framework's in place. Listen, God's a super relational God. He gave relationship to us so that we might have meaning and value in our lives. And maybe more importantly, so that we would know who he is, and how to worship him. That's what it meant to Israel getting the Ten Commandments. God gave them a framework from which they had never been able to operate before. They didn't know how to worship God. They didn't know who he was other than a few miracles. Um, This was revolutionary to them. So moving forward from this, we see Jewish law kind of overtakes practical loving and living. Not intentionally, it was designed, the law was designed to rein in how they treated each other, but it got out of hand. And so one or two or 10 things became 613. There's 613 Jewish laws, maybe more now, but 613 laws. And Micah, about 400 years later, says, yeah, it's a bit complicated. So I'll tell you what, Uh, Judah, like, while I'm telling you that, you know, your province is going to fall apart and then get rebuilt, I'm, I'm going to call you back to loving God. And here's what, it's lo- what it looks like. And he says, Micah chapter 6, verse 8, he says, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. It's pretty different than the 613 laws that they felt obligated to obey in order to know that they were close to God. Flying ahead to the New Testament, Matthew in chapter 22, verse 34 to 35. He's a traitorous tax collector. Like he's a sellout. You've heard a hundred sermons on Matthew. I don't need to go into more detail about him. But he becomes one of the 12. And he gives up his old life for his new life in Jesus. And he recounts an incident in his gospel where the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law and the elders ask Jesus a slew of trick questions in an attempt to make a fool out of him. And to prove him as the con man and the liar that they were convinced that he was. And so, trying to corner him on paying taxes to Caesar and marriage and the resurrection, now they come to him and they ask him what the greatest commandment is. So, one, one particular um, lawyer who's standing there watching Jesus very successfully defend himself against um, the barrage of, of insensitivity, he says, of all the commands, which is the most important? And Jesus responds, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. 
This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Quick illustration. Uh, went down to Moab, Utah. Sound like a world traveler. I'm not. I'm a dork. But we're going down to Utah to film this epic commercial for like an app platform we were working on. And so it's us three business partners. And, and we go down there totally out of our element. Guys, I am not a Squamishite. I'm from Podunk, Chilliwack. I'm not a farmer, but I smell like it. So we go to Moab, and we're actually working with three like, high-class professional athletes. Like the hardest core, you guys probably have them all over the place here, but these are the most amazingly skilled, talented, and, and experienced athletes like, I have ever met. I don't think they're like super popular, like soccer players and hockey players and stuff, but they're filming commercials for like Audi and crazy huge companies, Apple and stuff like that. Like they're doing stuff like this. And so we hire them to help us with this commercial to make a long story short. Basically we're talking about the Grand Canyon is what we're staring at. Um, and so they find a part of the Canyon, this massive Canyon where, um, there's kind of a, a dip in it, like not a dip, but like a cutout. And they string these multiples of ropes. I don't even know the lingo, but they string these like climbing ropes across and then attached to those in the middle of it is this giant rope swing. It's the world's longest or deepest, not the world's, North America's um, deepest rope swing. It's 300 meters. I was actually going to prep the video. I have it here. I was going to play it into the microphone of me. It's like, <laughs> yeah. As you see me swing back up the other side. And it, and it's, it was the, I wanted to die. I think I blacked out. No, I'm sure I blacked out. It was crazy. They actually didn't do a whole lot of prep before we did this. And so as I'm standing there, I, I'm not kidding, like maybe a minute before we were supposed to jump, Brian, he's like amazing. He's like, okay, so, I mean, they assume we're as smart as they are. I'm like fat and short and stuff. And, and he's like, okay, so when you hang there, you're only hanging by one rope. Like all of you is hanging by one rope. How much do you weigh? And then he's like, when, when you're out there and you stop swinging, I'm going to climb across the ropes 300 meters above you, and, and, and I'm going to pull this other rope towards you, and you have to clip that on and then unclip the other rope. I'm like, yeah, no problem. <laughs> it was the scariest thing I've ever done in my life. Not the jumping. That was second scariest. But like literally knowing that I had to unclip that second carabiner after I clipped the first one in, I thought I was going to die. I literally thought I was going to die. And then 300 meters of climbing back up the mountain, I thought I was going to die. I thought I was going to die. I thought I was going to die. It like everything hung on the law and the prophets. Everything. That was salvation to them. If they didn't keep the rules and the laws and the regulations, you know this, they wouldn't see God for eternity. That was it. Okay, let's jump ahead. Luke's account's a little bit different. So there's three accounts of this that I want to touch on each of them. Luke's is a little bit different. Um, actually, sorry, Mark's, Mark's. We're going to Mark's first. Mark, um, same incident. But a little, little bit different. He adds some detail. So Mark actually says, um, in his recollection, um, he says that that 
religious guy responds, well said, teacher. So this is Mark chapter 12, 28 to, to 34. He says, well, well said, teacher. You're right in saying that um, there's one God and there's nobody else but him. To love him with your whole heart, all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That that's more important than offering burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is funny. Like, aha funny and haha funny. Um, so this guy, this religious expert, he testifies to Jesus' orthodoxy when he says, um, well done, teacher. He's like half mocking him, half serious. Jesus had great theology. Um, th- this, this guy had great theology. And, and they're just sparring about this common understanding of the law that they both knew. And so he didn't trap Jesus, and Jesus didn't necessarily mock him. But in response, Jesus compliments his equally good theology, and he says, you're not far from God. You're not far from God. Whew. Probably thought about it for a few days. The guy knew his stuff. He knew the law inside and out, obviously. But he missed that Jesus, the Messiah, was standing right there in front of him. and didn't even recognize it. Jumping to Luke's account in Luke chapter 10, 25 to 37. Um, this one is the different account. It, it might even actually be a, a different scenario altogether, but um, there are a lot of similarities here. I wanted to bring it in. So instead of the religious expert asking Jesus what the greatest command was, um, he instead asks him a little, uh, something a little bit sneakier. Um, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, that's a, like a bigger question. That's a lot bigger. Jesus casually responds to, to his baited inquiry, and he says, well, what's the law say? And how do you interpret it? So Mr. Religious, obviously knowing the answer by heart, he lays it on Jesus this time, and he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength and with all your mind, and then love, the, love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus praises his understanding of the law, and yet he unconvincingly encourages him. Keep what you're doing then. Keep doing what you're doing then. It sounds like you got this. I mean, that's not what the Bible says, but it's essentially the same. Keep doing what you're doing. If it's working so good for you, Dr. Phil always would say to parents struggling with their kids, how's that working for you? It's kind of what's happening here. So the guy, either frustrated with Jesus' cantor or um, just offended by his presence, he questions him. He says, so who's my neighbor then? And so Jesus tells him a story. And you know it. It's the Good Samaritan. It's four characters. Religious guy, religious guy, not religious guy, and beat up guy. Guy's walking around. He gets beat up and raped, and we don't know. He just gets pummeled and robbed. And a couple of religious guys, for different reasons, totally neglect him. But then the super pagan heathen, from the Jewish perspective, he's not. He was probably super religious, but he didn't honor and worship the exact same things about God that, that, that the, the Jews did. He actually takes care of the guy. And he spends his time, his effort, and his energy on this guy to see that he's healed. Don't know if it's a real story, but there's a lot of real details here. I'm not going to go into a lot of depth about what Samaritans are, because this is another story we've heard hundreds of times. But at the risk of oversimplifying it, I want to kind of impress upon us why the Jews hated them so much. Like, it's so pervasive in Scripture the hatred of Jews to Samaritans and Samaritans' resentment of Jews. It's, it's all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. So much so that we might not even ask why. Why did the Jews hate them so much? What's going on? So 
I just liken it to the U.S. versus the Soviet Union, or um, Ferrari versus Lamborghini, or another epic battle, the Yankees versus the Red Sox, Muhammad Ali versus Joe Fraser, Apple versus Samsung, Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader, and my all-time favorite, Dog River versus Wollerton. It's probably not just like one of those events, but like all of them compiled into one, and then some. Because the relationship that Jews had historically, politically, religiously with the Samaritans, it's it, it way more supercharged. Suffice it to say, there was mad hate, passionate disdain, like vengeful fury from Jew to Samaritan. But when Jesus asks him, which of those four characters showed mercy? He says, under his breath, probably murmuring or muttering it, the guy who showed mercy. Like he hates the Samaritans. This, this esteemed Jew hates Samaritans with equally as much loathsomeness as the rest of his kin that he can't even say the word Samaritan. Throw one more at you. I just kind of cross-referenced all three of the greatest command um, stories. But Jesus does something really neat here um, in Matthew chapter 7. So at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, his epic speech on the side of the hill, um, he gives what's known as the golden rule. Um, I think we're just hard-pressed. No, we're pressed hard to understand what it means to love like Jesus did pre-golden rule. And love spattered throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Like, don't think that love is a revolutionary concept to, to Jesus in the New Testament, in the Gospels. It's not. Leviticus 19.18 talks about loving your neighbor and, and trying to define it. And that's what the law was about, trying to define what loving God and loving each other looked like. But Jesus comes along and he, and he kind of rephrases it. And he says, well, I mean, do to them what you'd want them to do to you. So he's now, Jesus is saying, listen, if you want to know what it looks like to love people, just do the awesome stuff to them that you'd want them to do right back to you. Do awesome stuff to them that you want awesome done to you. So it, it just kind of adds some shape and, and gives a little bit more direction to this. Um, his single statement here, I believe, um, outlines Jesus' ethics. And, and what the expectation of us is as well, as his followers. It's Jesus' heart. So the Ten Commandments gave a nation a framework to relate positively to God. But it was apparently really tough to do, as you and I know. Enter the sacrificial system. Not so good. The further uh, exposition throughout the Law and the Prophets seems to have complicated what it meant to be holy. And so, the greatest Two commands, love the Lord, love your neighbor. Um, clarified things a bit more for people. But it was still a tough slog. And so right standing, um, right standing was the issue. The Old Testament, our actions are completely impingent upon our eternity, or vice versa. Our eternity is impingent upon right actions. And Jesus now here in, in, in the golden rule, he, he's not really affirming that. He's not saying it's not, necessarily, but, but he's not saying it is, which is an awesome transition. 
Because the golden rule, it dumbified to, to be crass. It dumbified right living. It simplified it and made it easy. Er, easier. But in John 13, our text that we read in the beginning, a new command, he changes the standard of what it means to love. He takes it, like radically takes it, from what you'd like done to you, to who Jesus is, and how Jesus loves. And that's really different. The standard's not how we love ourselves. Like in the greatest commander, the golden rule, it's rooted and grounded in how Jesus actually and practically loved us. The Old Testament commanded it, and Jesus was fulfilling it, and we were being called to live it. It's like, theologically speaking, God stepping into the fabric of his very own creation, spending his time teaching, preaching, ministering, healing, feeding, freeing, interceding, and eventually dying a sacrificial death. It's because he loved us that he created us. It's because he loves us that he sustains us. And it's because he loves us that he redeemed us. That's how God shows love. He completely spends himself on behalf of us. A few verses earlier in John 13, 13, we read this account of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. So like, they're sitting down. They're in the middle of this most epic feast in all of the universe. Not a big deal. And, and Jesus gets up, just stands up, and he takes his baggy robe off, and he grabs a towel and reaches for the pitcher to pour water into the basin, and then he grabs one of the 24 crusty, stank, sweaty ankles that are there with him. And he starts washing it. And they're like, what the freak, man? But he does, works his way through all 12 apostles. Peter puts up a bit of a fight, but in the end he concedes, wash all of me. It's because he has a big mouth. But that's how he loves us. And amidst that, he says, John chapter 13, verse 13 and 17, now that I've loved you, sorry, now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet as I have sent you, set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a master greater than the one who sent him. I'm going to tell you something non-revolutionary right now. Jesus is God incarnate. We get, we know that. But Jesus tells us right here. He says, loving like I've loved is essentially loving God because I'm him. That's what he says. How we respond to the command proves how real of a disciple we are. Like really a disciple. Like if, Jesus says something and we do it. We're probably in line with what he's teaching and where he's going. And if we don't, we're probably not. If it hasn't infected our heart and changed us inside to outside, we might want to question if we've really fallen in love with the God, the creator of the universe, who lived a 
perfect life and died a perfectly sinless death. So the question isn't really whether we know it, it's whether we do it. Because this kind of stuff isn't our natural inclination, is it? I'll give you some biblical principles. Um, it's essentially that God is love, number one. His love is sacrificial, number two. Number three, he laid down the pattern to love. Number four, he commands us to do it. And number five, the love that we're talking about, it's a quality, not equality. It's a quality. It's not necessarily an emotion. It's not even an emotion. Emotions can come, but... The love we're talking about in Scripture from the, from the lips of Jesus is a practical, get-it-done kind of a love that demonstrates that we are actually from the Father. We're of the Father. That we belong to Jesus. So from a 3,000-foot view, I'm, not, I'm actually not going to get very practical with you guys because like, I just would never want somebody coming back and saying, well, you gave me three ways to love, so I did it. Because that's not it. But practically speaking, at a high level... Here's what it looks like. It's forgiving others who don't deserve it and aren't asking for it. It's doing out of grace what isn't even deserved, and it's showing mercy to people, even when it's the last thing you feel like doing. Because God did it for you. It's becoming less arrogant, prideful, angry, and critical, less self-absorbed, less harsh, less judgmental and exclusive, less rude, less demanding. It's actually shedding the layers of selfishness, resentment, and bitterness. It's rising above our irritating human imperfections and inadequacies and washing others' gross, malformed, and gangrenous-looking feet, metaphorically speaking, because he did it. And that's the framework he gave us. We love like this because he loved us like this. He loves us like this. So, if I'm taking a cue, Dave Lowen, if I'm taking a cue from the Good Samaritan, um, I'm going to adopt his similar willingness to love even the people who maybe lied about me or cheated or stole, used, abused, and maligned me. That's not easy to do, is it? So look, the bottom line is that real disciples have real faith in a real God. And in response to everything that he's said and done, they really love him because he really loved us. Not because anything hangs on it, because it doesn't. It's just because it's what he did. It's who he was. Um, practically speaking, living like this ought to transform how we live today and tomorrow. And it should look a little bit different than it did yesterday. But nobody's nerfed. And Life's a journey, but we get to ride this with Jesus.
So I came up with a practical slogan for you. Actually, I was going to get it printed on those little bracelets you wear, and, you know, um, W-W-S-M-O-B-O-P-P-L-L. What should I be... What would spending myself on behalf of other people look like? I think I screwed the acronym up. W-W-S-M-O-B-O-P-P-L-L-L. P-P-L-L. What would spending myself on behalf of other people look like? Seriously. It's like you're standing in the grocery store line and moron has 52 items in the 13-item aisle. Whether he's a Christian or not, what do you... Idiot! Come on, man! Gotta go work out! (laughs) Or you're like buying a car and the sales guy's being a jerk and trying to rip you off. Or your spouse isn't making dinner fast enough. I don't know. You're at church. I don't. You guys have issues here. So do we at Northview. We all have our issues. We're human. We're frail. We're fragile. And so we get offended. But Jesus says, overcome that stuff because you've nothing to prove. I did it for you. I proved it for you. You've nothing to achieve. I've achieved it for you. And you've nothing to gain. So that stuff having all been resolved, ought to take some of the the steam out of our... uh. So it looks different for you than me, because we're different. We have different temperaments. We have different attitudes. We respond and react to different stuff. But we're all called to the same thing. Just to lay it down. A sacrificial way of living, because that's the God that we serve. So, for John... Um, to see, like writing his gospel to John meant presenting Jesus as the king. It was John seeing and presenting Jesus to the rest of the world, specifically the Jews, as the king. And he wants us to discover what he discovered because it changed John forever. And that's what he wants for us. That's the purpose of, of his gospel. He, John was the son of thunder who wanted to call lightning down on Samaria because they didn't give him a place to stay when they were on their way to Jerusalem. But he became the apostle of love. He wrote to inflame our hearts, to remind first century readers and us today that loving others is the sole basis of Christianity and that the overflow demonstrates a transformed heart. Okay, so I'm going to give it to you. I want you guys to Rhetorically, answer this. Quietly, answer this. To yourselves, because you know yourselves best. Where are you with Jesus? And if you take an honest, hard look at your lives, like if the guy is standing behind you at the grocery store, no. If the guy standing in front of you at the grocery store had the opportunity to hear how you were talking about him or behind his back, or your friends, or whatever. What do they think about you? What do they think about you guys? Like, are you passionate, sold-out lovers of Jesus? Is that, is that like eminently visible in how you live your life? And I'm, I'm not saying if it's not, that you're not believers. I'm just saying that's like a guess-and-check method. If Jesus says love because I loved, and you'll be known by love, because I am love, but we don't love, it tells us something. So then we just need to realign ourselves. We've got to ask ourselves if we've fallen in love with the true God that's explained in Scripture. So I don't know who you are. I don't know where you guys 
but we're all from different places and spaces, and none of us are on the same page exactly here today. So if you know Jesus, awesome. You're like kind of on the fence about Jesus and you've heard this stuff before but it hasn't connected or maybe you're like evaluating it in light of some other stuff and you're just asking questions. Welcome. That's awesome. Thanks for being here and thanks for having me. And good luck because I think, I think you're going to meet someone you really like in the person of the Son of God. But maybe you're here and you don't know him. Like you just came in off the street. I don't know. Maybe someone yanked you here because you're their neighbor or... They'd see you at the coffee shop all the time and they wanted to do some, something, something good. Um, welcome. And I hope you heard something today through me that helps you understand a bit more about the God who passionately loves you and died for you so you could spend eternity in heaven with him. So I just want to encourage you, if you know him, keep love the well that is scripture and learn more about who, who Jesus is. He's amazing. If you don't know him, I just want to encourage you, dig deep in the well that is scripture and figure out who he is because he's amazing. So with that, I just want to pray with you. God, we just want to thank you. You're awesome. And you have demonstrated to us unequivocally without a shadow of a doubt how much you love us and care about us and and take care of us. And so we give you credit because we deserve none and we give you glory because we deserve none. And we just thank you um, that You've done what you have done and you keep doing what you're doing because you have an awesome plan of, of, of redemption and you invite us into it. So God, I just ask for everybody here that as we percolate on what was spoken and we leave this place that you would just, um, just inspire their hearts and their minds to fall passionately in love with you, the Son of God, who gave everything sacrificially so that they could live. Amen. Thank you.